0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Associations podcast. The opinions expressed
1: in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
0: My name is Justin Watson. I'm an early specialization PGY-6 at Oregon Health and Science University. I'm here with Dr. Paul Schipper, who is a professor of thoracic surgery and Program Director for Cardiothoracic Surgery at OHSU. Thank you for joining us today to talk about chylothorax. Thank you for having me. You have successfully completed a redo coarctation repair via left thoracotomy on an otherwise healthy 45-year-old male. It is now post-operative day four. Left chest tube output has been greater than one liter per day. After starting a regular diet, the chest tube output changes from serous to milky in appearance. What are your considerations in presentation and diagnostic workup? Also, what is your differential diagnosis at this time? The differential for
1: a high volume serous effusion is long and would include sympathetic effusion, peri effusion, heart failure. The differential for a serous effusion that converts to milky after eating is very short, with chylothorax at the top of the list. Other possibilities could be development of an empyema with pus looking like chyle, or esophageal or gastric perforation with some version of cream-colored tube feeds leaking out the hole and looking like chyle. Anytime you operate in a posterior mediastinum, in this case on an aortic coarctation, and have a milky effusion, you have to suspect a chylothorax. Other procedures may include esophagectomy, innocent fundoplication, or parasophageal hernia repair with mobilization of the distal esophagus, a paratracheal or subcranial lymph node dissection or sampling, mediastinoscopy, left internal mammary harvest, any mobilization of the aortic arch or even ascending aorta if it is aggressive, such as for an aortic valve replacement. All of these things put the thoracic duct at risk of injury, and I have seen chylothorax caused by all of these procedures.
0: What about the diagnostic workup?
1: Sometimes, as in this situation, the clinical history is very strong. Confirmation of a thoracic duct leak is done by looking for things that belong in a duct and not in the pool of space. Chylomicrons are a very specific lipoprotein that are not present in serum. You look for them under a microscope. This test can be difficult to obtain or take several days. A smear looking for cellular elements can be useful. Chyle contains almost exclusively lymphocytes, as opposed to pus, which has polys. You can also look for free fat globules, which stain with Sudan III. A triglyceride level, while not as specific, is available at most hospitals with results back often in a few hours. In a patient who is receiving long chain fats to their small intestines, meaning more than 10 carbons long, which is the type of fat the duct carries, a triglyceride level greater than 110 mg per deciliter confirms a chylothorax. If it is less than 50, it is almost certainly not a chylothorax or you're not feeding the small intestines long chain fats. And this is key. If there are not long chain triglycerides in the small intestines, there will not be triglycerides in the chyle, and you cannot use this test to rule out a chylothorax. A positive triglyceride, even if you are not feeding the person, is useful, and does indicate a chylothorax, and it probably represents residual fat in the gut
0: coming through the system. Are there any provocative steps you could consider to help confirm the diagnosis? The provocative tests all involve placing
1: long-chain triglycerides into the small intestines, either through the mouth, a gastrostomy tube, or a jejunostomy tube. Some common fats that are used are heavy cream or olive oil. Half and half works. If you're struggling to find these items, find the coffee shop in your hospital. They will have cream or half and half. It is important to remember that lipids that go in TPN and are given intravenous do not get into the thoracic duct and do not stimulate or increase thoracic duct flow. This is a common misperception. Lymphangiography is a very involved method of confirming a leak. In many cases, if you have bothered to go through the steps of obtaining a lymphangiogram, you should
0: be ready to coil the duct at the same procedure. The patient above is afibrile. Hemodynamically stable and otherwise doing well on the floor. Chest tube drainage was sent for fluid analysis showing triglyceride level of 220 and chylomicrons confirming suspicion of chylothorax. Discuss your management going forward. Specifically, describe the basis for medical management of this patient and how long you would treat medically before deciding to reoperate. First, if you
1: don't have it already, you need good drainage of the pleural space with your choice of chest drain. You've confirmed the diagnosis of chylothorax. Some leaks will seal on their own if you can slow the flow through the duct, which means slowing the flow of fluid through the duct. And notice we are talking about fluid, not just fats. In general, if you can get an iatrogenic thoracic duct leak leaking less than 500 cc's in a day, it will seal up on its own, given enough time. If you cannot get the volume of this leak that low, the leak will never seal up and you should move sooner to an intervention. The thoracic duct is lymphatic drainage from the small intestines, including fat. If you remove fats from the diet, you reduce some of the flow through the duct. However, the gut is still stimulated by the food it is seen, even if it is fat-free food, and therefore it has increased blood flow, and therefore it has increased lymphatic drainage. NPO takes the flow down to neutral, so to speak. Then if you add octreotide, it's like applying a break. Octreotide will reduce the lymphatic drainage of the small intestines even further, by both inhibiting secretion and by reducing the blood flow into the intestine. You're in a bit of a race to get the duct sealed before too much is lost in the fluid draining out of your tubes. This fluid is very rich in protein, and fat soluble vitamins, and in antibodies. Whatever move or moves you choose they will typically take between 6 and 24 hours to work and there are essentially two approaches to working your way through the options. One, is to start minimal and escalate when the output fails to come down. So for example, start with a low-fat diet. If that fails, move to a no-fat diet. If that fails, a clear liquid diet. If that fails, NPO. And if that fails, aductreotype. So by the time you have an idea if medical management is going to work, potentially a week has passed. In the meantime, every day you're telling the patient that your current management failed and you need to take something away, and every day, you're losing some volume greater than 500 cc's per day of this person's protein, lipid soluble vitamins, and antibodies. By the time you begin to see success, the patient perceives that the plan has failed five to six times. Alternatively, if you escalate very quickly to maximum maneuvers to shut down thoracic duct flow, for example, NPO and IV fluid immediately, adding octreotide maybe the next day if the output is not under 500 cc's, you will usually know within two days whether medical management is going to succeed or not. You can then add things back after you think the duct has sealed or more quickly move on to an intervention such as ligation or embolization. TPN is only needed if you are worried about the patient's nutrition. It is going to do nothing to reduce the flow through the duct. It is of course, it ought to it has all the infectious risks that come with TPN, including the need for central venous access. Remember, you can give
0: fat in the TPN. It does not end up in the thoracic duct or increased duct flow. You decide to keep treating the patient with octreotide, bowel rest, and TPN. Two weeks have passed and the patient continues to have greater than 500 cc's per day of chest tube output. Fluid analysis shows persistently elevated triglyceride levels. What would you do next? First off, Two weeks is a long time to wait for medical management to work, even with a duck
1: full of less than 500 cc's per day. You want to be sure that you are maintaining hydration and nutrition in this person. Second off, you would ask the question, why are the triglyceride levels persistently high? Usually, if you have somebody NPO and there is no fat in their gut, especially after two weeks, there should be no fat in the chyle. Your next intervention will be guided by where you think the duct is leaking. A formal ligation of the thoracic duct is done through a right thoracoscopy or thoracotomy. Again, a formal ligation of the thoracic duct is a right-sided pre- procedure. If the duct injury can be visualized through a right-sided procedure, for example, a duct leaking after an esophagectomy or a or 4 lymph node dissection, you can start by trying to find the actual leak and repair it with pledgeted suture. Having Kyle flowing through the duct to find the leak is helpful. You usually have to start putting fat in the intestines about six hours before the procedure. Remember to let anesthesia know that the patient is not necessarily NPO and why, so that they can perform a safer anesthesia. In our original example of a left-sided procedure with presumably a leak near the arch of the aorta, you have a decision to make. Attempt to primarily repair the leak with a left-sided approach first or Ligate the duct with a right-sided approach. You could also, if it is available, start with lymphangiography and thoracic duct coiling. A mass ligation of the thoracic duct places a tie around the thoracic duct, the asgus vein, and all the fat and small lymphatic tributaries about 3-4 to 4 centimeters above the diaphragm. You are essentially tying off all the soft tissue on the right side of the vertebral body except the esophagus and the aorta. You do this by first cutting the pleura just posterior to the asgus vein, sort of over the rib head, being careful to go between the segmental intercostal arteries and veins. You find the vertebral body and then you dissect behind the asgus vein until you think you are just behind the descending aorta. If you've done an esophagectomy, the next part is easier. You find the right lateral junction between the descending aorta and the more lateral fat, which contains the thoracic duct in the asgus vein, Staying next to the aorta, you mobilize posterior until you are again at the vertebral body. Watch out for the intercostal arteries as you do this mobilization. You have now found the vertebral body from two different directions. You then connect the dots and place a tie, mass ligating the duct, the fat, and the
0: azygous vein. With that in mind, can you describe the anatomy of the thoracic duct and what are some of the common variants? Like most structures in the
1: body, knowing the embryology of the duct helps you understand its anatomy and the variations. The central lymphatics start off as multiple lymph sacs which arise from the endothelium adjacent to the veins. They then coalesce into lymphatic channels and extend out into the periphery and usually this is along the paths of at least resistance which tend to be near the veins and the arteries. In the chest, a dual system or plexus forms with the downgrowth of the left jugular vein sac and the upward growth from the cisterna chyle. For a while there is a plexus that has multiple crossing channels. As the embryo matures, only the upper third of the left and the lower two-thirds on the right remain, with one of the bridging channels connecting the two. So this gives the most common system, a duct that starts in the right chest and around the level of T5 or T7 crosses over into the left and then drains into the lower deep side of the subclavian vein. Obviously multiple variations can and do exist, including a persistent lower left-sided duct, a dual system, both ducts stay, dual system with multiple bridging channels, a duct
0: that crosses at a variable level. You have a patient who is three days out from an Ivor Lewis esophagectomy for esophageal cancer. Right chest tube output has been moderate, about 500 cc's per day. Following initiation of enteral feeds via jagenostomy tube, you were called because the chest tube has put out 750 cc's of milky fluid so far. Of note, the patient had a preoperative weight loss of 20 pounds with a BMI of 21. Discuss how your management may or may not be different from the previous patient, and do you routinely perform thoracic duct ligation during esophagectomy? Our standard esophagectomy is a three-field minimally invasive esophagectomy with the cervical
1: anastomosis, so we are routinely in the right chest for this. And we routinely ligate the duct, either formally, as I described earlier, or by finding the duct proper and placing two or three clips on it. Kyle contains concentrated protein, fat, and antibodies, like we've discussed. So if the volume leaking cannot be brought down, you lose a significant amount of nutrition and of your immune system out the chest tube. A patient that is starting out malnourished to begin with is going to fall behind much quicker than a well-nourished patient. So we will be more quick to escalate to an intervention such as ligation or coiling in a malnourished patient as opposed to a well-nourished
0: patient. Following mass ligation of the thoracic duct, your patient continues to have a refractory right chylothorax. Besides medical management and mass ligation, what are some other options for managing this patient? Some institutions
1: will have interventional
0: radiologists able to coil a thoracic duct. Now, this is a procedure
1: which involves opacifying the cisterna chylae, directly cannulating it, and then advancing a catheter into the thoracic duct to perform a lymphangiogram, and ultimately coil the duct with either embolization coils or fibrin glue. Multiple methods are used to first opacify the cisterna chyli and the duct. Um, this includes direct cut down on a lymphatic in the foot or the groin, percutaneous cannulation of a lymphatic in the foot of the groin, methylene blue injected between the toes to color a lymphatic, which can then be cannulated. The success of this procedure is reported between 50 and 90%. The variability is mostly what you choose as the denominator. If you choose all patients with chylothorax who are presented to IR, it is 50%. If you choose all patients who have had their cisterna chylae successfully cannulated and the leak identified, it's closer to 90%. Whether thoracic duct embolization by IR is done before or after formal ligation is probably institution dependent. You can also perform pleurodesis with drainage.
0: You are reconsulted on a patient you did a mediastinoscopy on two weeks ago to confirm the diagnosis of lymphoma. She now complains of dyspnea and has a right pleural effusion. You place a chest tube confirming the diagnosis of chylothorax. What is the cause of chylothorax in this patient and how would you manage this patient? So this brings up a
1: key question of cause. An iatrogenic chylothorax caused by a physician putting a hole in a thoracic duct, for example, during a mediastinoscopy, is very different from a chylothorax caused by occlusion of the duct from another process, for example, lymphoma or malignancy or radiation fibrosis. If the duct is already occluded and chylo is leaking because it has nowhere else to go, you're not going to make this situation any better by occluding the duct further, such as in a ligation or a coiling. I would try to determine the cause of this person's chylothorax. A lymphangiogram may be able to do this. You may find a leak or you may see that the thoracic duct is blindly ending in the tumor. If I determined it was caused by the lymphoma, sometimes treating the lymphoma will unclog the duct and the chylothorax will go away. If not, a desis to prevent chylothorax may be the only option. You need to counsel the patient that there is a risk of causing chylocytes, which may be even more difficult to manage than a chylothorax. It may be the case that a small or moderate sized chylothorax will be stable, not increasing in size, and can be tolerated and does not need to be treated. I know there are at least two other methods of treating chylothorax and I have not used these. One is a portal peritoneal shunt and the second is thoracic duct to asgus vein anastomosis.
0: So this brings up the question, where does the chyle go if the thoracic duct is ligated? I think this is an interesting question, and I think it speaks to the variability
1: in the lymphatic system. We know that there are small connections between the thoracic duct and the ascus vein and the intercostal veins that are residual from its embryologic development, and these can develop into collateral drainage of the, any included or ligated thoracic duct. Long-chain fats then enter the circulation through these
0: collateral systems. Thank you, Dr. Shipper. This concludes our podcast on chylothorax.